Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Morning, church. We are, uh, if you're just uh, new here today, if it's your first time, your first time in a long time, or you just forgot what happened the last couple of weeks, we're in a series uh, uh, called Halfway to Heaven which is um, about what the church is supposed to be. And, you know, my understanding is, as I've talked with lots of people and, and interacting, that we're, there's some confusion about that. That, in a sense, the church promises to be this place, heaven on earth. In fact, Jesus and the New Testament writers described the church as a little taste of heaven on earth, or the overlap, or the place that heaven touches earth. And in that sense, that's a big promise, right? And yet, for many of us, Either we left the church, or we're struggling within a church, or we know people who have, maybe it's the reason you've been away for so long, it, it, fall, it seems to fall so short of heaven on earth. Because like, many people could say, oh, that was not my experience. Maybe in this church you felt like that, or another church, or a religious background of any kind. We go, it seems to promise so much. Maybe that was even why you went the first time, or your parents took you the first time, or you're here today. There's a promise of, this could be something meaningful, this could be something deep, this could be something profound in my life. But then it feels like, oh, we're not quite there. How, how could that be? And so we're actually spending uh, eight weeks to say, well, what does it mean to be the church? And, and our, our premise, or maybe our hope in this is, hey, we're not new in trying to figure this out. Um, you know, we're in, a, we're in an age where people are sort of past institutions in general. We, we distrust institutions. You know, even around the election that's coming up, there's lots of, if you read it or maybe you feel there's a lot of, oh, despair or, you know, at least cynicism around, is this really going to do anything? And a lot of people have that about education, about healthcare, about government and the church and religion in general. And, and is there anything to this? And, and, um, but it's not a new question, actually, even though lots of us are asking it. Uh, it's a question that seems from the beginning, uh, when Jesus started the church 2,000 years ago, the church struggled to actually get it, to actually live it out. And so the letters, some of the letters that are in the New Testament, um, are written to young churches like ours. And one of the letters we're going through in Corinthians is a letter that was written around 50 to 55 AD, uh, about 20 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, um, to a church that was about 10 years old. And so we're 15 years old. And so it's, it, we can relate and say they were, they were struggling to understand what does it mean to be the church. And so our hope is over these eight weeks that for you, maybe no one's ever explained it to you. And you'll be like, oh, that's what it is. Maybe for some of you that have cynicism or, you know, the, the, that you kind of left it. Maybe you're just sort of slowly maybe inching back or maybe a little bit, um, you know, or somebody dragged you here or whatever. And saying, okay, well, what, what could it be? Um, and, and, and actually, hopefully for all of us, you realize it is far more than an hour on Sunday. It is far more than a place you go. In fact, those aren't even the best ways to describe what this thing is. And we've been talking about it over the last few weeks recognizing it's a loaded word, right? It seems to promise much, but in many ways disappoints us. Well, there's actually another word that promises a lot in many ways disappoints us. It's the word family, <laughs> right? Family is also supposed to be this place of like love and acceptance and peace and everything. And yet some of you just last weekend at Thanksgiving maybe experienced some of that experience of promise and the letdown, right? All in one weekend. <laughs> That there's this thing called family that all of us were born into that we believe and hope and can be this place of acceptance and love and deep relationship. And maybe many of us can say, yeah, it's been that way, or it's not been that way at all, or it's been everything in between, or it used to be that way, or it used to not be that way, and now it is. 
whether or not you've had that experience with the church, we've all had that experience with family. Family is this wonderful and difficult thing. And interestingly, Jesus had a lot to say about both. He had a lot to say about both that made religious leaders say, what? And heads of family say, what? And he actually put them together in ways that I think are perhaps the most revolutionary teaching of what it means to be the church and what it means to be in a family. Um, Professor of New Testament at Notre Dame University, Jerome Nayre, when he describes the life of Jesus, he said, it's interesting if you watch Jesus, and we have sort of four biographies of his life, right? And Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four biographies of the life of Jesus. He was taking things that belonged in the temple, and he kept putting them in the home. So the temple was this place of, of really, uh, and the religious center of Jewish life, and Jesus was a, was a, a God-fearing Jew, and so he had a lot to say and was in the temple, but it seemed like every time he talked about the temple, every time he at the, te at the temple, he was criticizing it for what it represented. Because it represented separation. Holy things, unholy things. Holy things sort of happen here, unholy things can't happen here. It was a segregation even ethnically. So Jews were allowed in a certain part of the temple, but Gentiles were not. Gentiles were just non-Jews. So there was, and this wasn't just unique to the Jewish faith, there was racial segregation happening all over religious practice. And so it was a place of separation like that. And then it was also a place of separation where there were like holy people, like priests, and everyday Joes. And Jesus seemed to critique all of those things and instead did most of his work in the home. It's interesting. If you read the biographies of Jesus, so much of his teaching and his interaction that in theory should have happened in the temple because he was talking about God were happening at the dinner table. Jesus was in a sense taking the stuff that belonged to the temple, teaching about God, healing, forgiving of sins, and he was doing it in people's homes. And the religious leaders, it was part of the scandal of what he was doing, that you can't do this. You're discrediting the religion. You're discrediting this sort of place, and you're taking God everywhere. You can't just go forgiving sins in people's homes. You can't just go talking about God anywhere you want. These things belong in the temple, and yet Jesus was constantly doing it in the home. He was disrupting their religious order, and he was actually, in a sense, taking God out of this place where he was defined by segregation and separation, holy, unholy, Jew, Gentile, um, priest, and everyday Joe. And he was actually bringing it to where the everyday Joes were, in the home. And he was actually doing it in a place where there were all kinds of races and cultures and ethnic backgrounds mixing. And he was doing things like that the religious people said, well, that's not holy. You can't do that. You can't eat that kind of food. You can't eat with those kind of people. You can't do this on that day. And Jesus kept doing it. In many ways, it looks like he was actually trying to poke them in the eye while he was doing it. Like he was deliberately doing things on the Sabbath. How many times do you read on the Sabbath? He did this on the Sabbath. He did this in public to try to poke at them because he was making a point. He was bringing God out of this place of segregation, separation, holy, unholy, and bringing him into the home with everyday people like you and me. But it was disruptive for the religious leaders. One of the main thread lines of the biographies of Jesus is that the religious people killed him because he was not trying to start a new religion, he was trying to end it altogether. And he was doing that by putting God out of the temple and into the home. He said provocative things about the temple. He said, you destroy this, I can destroy this and rebuild it in three days. He, he had words of, some of his harshest words were for the religious leaders, which is ironic, right? Because some of the harshest words that religious people have today are for everyone else. And yet Jesus seemed to reserve his criticisms for the religious people because he was doing something in that moment. But he was equally disruptive to the family unit. 
Um, Nehru says this in his book about uh, the people of that time. He said, for the people of that time and place, the basic most elementary unit of social analysis is not the individual person, but the dyad or the group. A person in relationship with and connected to at least one other social unit, in particular, the family. They were constantly shown, that is, individuals are constantly shown that they exist solely and only because of the group in which they found themselves. What's he saying? Well, for us North Americans, fundamentally we see ourselves as individuals. Who am I? What am I going to do? What do I want to eat today? Where am I going to go to school? What am I going to study? What sports am I going to play? Who am I going to marry? What am I going to do as a career? And all of that is self-defined. He said, in the Near Eastern world, and many of you come from cultures that this is actually more true than, than Western culture is, no, the family determines all of that. The family determines who you are. They actually tell you who you are. The family determines what you're going to do for a living. The family determines who you're going to marry. The family determines how your lot in life is going to be for better or for worse. And not only family, but sort of the, the broader tribe and clan that you were a part of which was a part of the ethnic group and your origin, and then even your trades along with that, which is why you know, many of the trades were associated with family. So some of you that have the last name Baker or the last name Smith or those kinds of things, Fisher, those were names in a sense that were associated with what you did because who you were was so tied to the family unit. And so there was no such thing as individuals charting their own way. The family was everything. That was the world. That was how they understood themselves as people. And so this is the world into which Jesus came, and yet Jesus was constantly disrupting these family barriers. First of all, um, like there, there's one point where he was in a home teaching, and tons of people were crowded, and like I said, he taught in homes many times. And someone says, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside, to which a God-fearing self-respecting Jewish man, head of the family, he's probably head of the family at that point because his father would have passed away, would have said, sorry, stop, make way, we're gonna bring my family, we're gonna, I'm gonna honor my mother and my brothers, I'm gonna put them here in the front, hey, you guys, could you just move? You know, I know you paid a lot for these seats for the mosh pit stuff, but you have to move, so you gotta come in and sit here. That's what a God-honoring, self-respecting Jewish religious leader especially would have said. Your mother and brother's outside, you know what he says? My mother and brothers are anyone who does the will of my father in heaven. Which would have been met with shock in the crowd. What are you saying? That is disrespect. Now we know Jesus actually didn't disrespect his mother and parents and the tradition of those days because he criticized the religious leaders once for using religious laws to get out of looking after their parents when they aged. So we know that was an important value. Even Jesus on the cross as he's dying transfers, in a sense, care of his mother from himself to his disciple John. We know Jesus cared about his mother and brothers, but what was he saying to these people who were thinking, he said, listen, you have a very tight circle, and in that circle, you are generous, you are self-sacrificing, you are loyal, and you are loving. But it's only to your blood relatives. And in a sense, only to the people who you owe that social obligation to. In a sense, only to the people that will help you find your career. And so you don't bring dishonor in your family and your mother and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus is saying, I want you to broaden that circle. And not just try to be nice to everyone else. I want you to rethink who are your mother and brothers. 
it's not just your blood relatives. It's not just these people in this family. I want you to think about this, about loyalty, about self-sacrifice, about generosity, about compassion, and about love outside these boundaries. It's actually one of the ways to read the Gospels is through the lens of what Jesus was doing with the church and the new family unit. He was challenging their understanding of it. He not only took God out of the temple and put him in the household, he took the household and threw the doors wide open. He said, rethink what you think about God and about family and about mothers and brothers and sisters. He didn't seem to abide by the boundaries of family. In fact, Jesus' own family boundaries were a bit of a mess. He came from, you ever wonder why they're often saying Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? Right? The town where you came from described the clan and the tribe and the origin of where you were. And Nazareth was a backwater town. It was like today it would be like, I'm not going to do that. I fell in the bank. You thought I was going to say Regina or something, but I didn't. Okay, so, right? He, he, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, and at one point someone said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like he was not, it was not, when they say that, they're not just talking about the geography. They're talking about what it symbolized in this man who had no credibility because he came from such and such a place. It's why they always said, so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Because you were known by who your family was and who your tradition was, and that immediately either conferred honor upon you or dishonor, depending on what son of so-and-so people would be like, oh, or like, oh. You know, that's how it worked. And so Jesus is from this town, and then we know he was from poverty. His, his father was a carpenter. He was a blue-collar man. He was a lived on subsistence. He didn't have like a, sort of an important job. He certainly wasn't a religious leader like that. And he was even, there was shame surrounding his birth. He was a bastard child, right? The whole virgin birth thing didn't sit well with most of the people in that neighborhood. They're like, yeah, that's not a thing. And so Jesus grew up actually with shame. And we know people brought it up later in life and sort of trying to discredit him saying, you, we know you, we know your story, brother, your mom's story. And so there was shame and so much shame in that kind of day, in that kind of culture, just around his family background. And so the fact that he would take authority as a religious leader, even though he wasn't born into a religious family, his father wasn't a priest, and yet he seemed to take the role of having this, people were like, who are you? How could you? You came from dishonor. You came from nowhere. You weren't born into this. How do you have the right to this? So Jesus didn't even seem to obey what the social sort of family norms were about it. And not only that, the group of people that he gathered around him, right? And the people, you know, like in those days too, and, and this is true still, the people around you in a sense determine your reputation. If you know good people, if you know upstanding people, if you have a good crowd, it sort of, it sort of makes you seem more honorable or not, right? Well, the group of people Jesus had around him were a mixed bag. They were not from a certain ethnic group. Uh, they were not, even though they were Jews, they were, some of them were uh, involved in lots of dishonorable things. One of them was like a, basically a, a political terrorist, a zealot. And a couple of them were fishermen. One of them was a doctor. One of them was a tax collector. Like, it was a mixed bag of people. It was not like a normal group that people would have said, oh, these people look like an honorable group. So not only Jesus himself was sort of kind of looked at, you know, out of squinted eyes, but then the group around him, he did not seem to follow these nice family boundaries of who he was investing in and who he said was valuable and important. And the teaching now, if you think about it in this case, it was constantly aimed at saying, widen your circle, widen your circle. The kinds of, you know, we read things about being generous and caring for others as we think, oh yeah, okay, but he said, no, it's not that they weren't. They were just only that way to a certain group of people. 
and it was in your tribe, in your family, and how the world worked. And he said, yeah, I want you to actually even think about your enemy as potentially someone you would treat like they were your brother. That's why the love your enemy stuff was so insulting. We today go, oh, that's so nice, love your enemy. Even though actually in practice we don't think it's cool, but we think it sounds honorable, but in that culture it was not, it was dishonor. What do you mean treat your enemy like they're your brother? What do you mean those people, and I'm supposed to help all these people, I'm supposed to live, I can't. They're not gonna give me back anything in return. I have to look after this group of people. You start to look at the teaching of Jesus through this lens of what he was doing to the family unit. It was very disruptive, very unsettling. And so the Apostle Paul and the writers of the New Testament, the people kind of the church, picked up on this theme. And you know what was the most common phrase they used to refer to each other in the church? Brothers and sisters. Like we just read over that quickly if you've ever read any of these passages or even Adrian was reading it for you this morning. Maybe you missed that just at the beginning. It's like, oh, brother, you know, like sort of like street talk or whatever. It's like, no, no, that's not, that's, that, that's like sort of insignificant. Brothers and sisters is from the Greek word adelphoi which sort of is like a, a, a plural term for this. And he was saying that this became the new greeting in the New Testament church. And this is incredibly significant. That the body of Christ began to see itself. These people, this form, this community that Jesus formed, began to see themselves as brothers and sisters. In many ways, they had to because some of them had been kicked out of their homes. They had lost their standing place because they had become followers of Jesus. And so they began to actually, and so the Apostle Paul, as he's talking to them, saying, think about the church, think about each other this way, brothers and sisters. And then he goes on and says a few things that at first seem a little bit confusing to our ears, but I want to unpack them for you. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I want you to look at those words, noble birth and lowly things. Paul's actually using those as opposites. Um, uh, the, the phraseology they used in that day and time was you were either highborn or lowborn. So these were, these were Greek phrases, actually. That, that's the exact language he's using. And you were highborn. In other words, that meant you came from a good place. If your family, if your clan, if your tribe, if your ethnic group, if your uh, profession and trade was all sort of something that was considered noble, and you were born into that family, you were considered highborn. And that would actually determine a lot of your life. The opportunities you would have, like I said, how people would see you as soon as you introduced yourself, I am the son of this, or I do this, it would immediately be this implication and this um, uh, assumption of nobility. And that's what he says, noble birth. He's saying there, there's those that are highborn, and then there are the lowly things, those that are lowborn, those that don't come from um, good stock. They come from maybe ignobility, like whether it was um, you know, a, a birth out of wedlock or a certain kind of tribe or a mixed marriage or a marriage which parents didn't support or a, from a certain kind of town or between two cultures or from other religions and all this stuff, all of those things would contribute to those, those people being seen as lowborn and that would determine a lot of their trajectory and where they were going in life. 
So from my own uh, cultural background in, in East Indian, the caste system is sort of representative of those kinds of things. And many of you from different cultures around the world, we have our own standards here in North America too, but we understand, right? It is, you may not understand that terminology from the ancient world, but you understand how it works itself out. This is highborn and lowborn. And Paul is saying, look, in fact, many of them, he, he was trying to get at the fact that they were acting out of the highborn, lowborn status in their new family as a church. He says, that doesn't belong here. God actually turns the whole world upside down. That's what he says. He uses the weak things to shame the strong, the things that aren't, the things that aren't. He says, the world works on this principle, high-born, low-born, and that determines everything. He said, but God has turned it all upside down in Christ. Those things don't matter anymore. Now, that may sound good to our ears, but you and I don't have the experience, so we don't use that language of like high-born and low-born. But can I just suggest this to you? We are all from high-born and low-born families. Each of us is from a high-born and low-born family. What I mean by this is this. Each of us has things from our family of origin that are noble, that are good, that we are so thankful we have, that we have carried with us into life, that as we maybe become adults, we're becoming more aware of like, how good this is, right? And those of you that are teens and you're saying, I'm just giving you a little bit of a hint there, you can say to your parents, hey, later, thank you for this. I you know, didn't know, I was unaware of that. This, this idea that every one of us has things in our family of origin that if we stop long enough, we think, man, I, that was just because I was born in that family, I got that. That was a blessing, that actually came. There were things about my family practices, memories, experiences, opportunities that came from my family of origin. And that, that's kind of, I don't use that word highborn, but it's like, man, that's amazing. I was blessed by that. But then we also all have, if we're honest, memories, experiences, relationships, conversations that were not so highborn, that were ignoble because we're all sinners. We're all Messed up people. I remember the first day I realized, oh my gosh, I'm teaching my kids to sin. <laughs> I didn't plan on doing this. We all have that. Other things that we brought in. And I know many of us, certainly from, from um, other cultures and honor-shame cultures, we're very afraid to even talk about that, right? Because we're told, hey, don't dishonor the family, right? Whatever happens out there, make sure it looks good. We just deal with whatever we deal with in here, right? And, and so it's hard for us to actually even admit, no, nah, there were some things that weren't so good either. It's both. I'm from a high-born family, and I'm from a low-born family. And these things actually affect the way we see family. They actually affect, I, I, I talk about this with couples when I'm preparing them for marriage. This is going to affect the way you relate to your spouse. This is going to affect the way you see family. And not just biological family, it's going to affect the way you see the church family. And so when the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers use the words brothers and sisters to describe the church family, we have to realize, actually, there are things from my family that I'm bringing into this family, some of which is great and noble and beautiful, some of which is not. Peter Scazzaro, um, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he talks about these as the Ten Commandments of your family. And what he's saying is, there's things in your family... Nobody said these were the rules. I mean, you had other rules like screen time or whatever. I know I didn't grow up with those things, right? But these are the rules we have. And like when you go to bed, those kind of rules. He said, no, no, there were other things that maybe nobody said out loud, but you knew this is how it works in this family. There's these rules. For example, he said, there are rules about money in your family. And they may have been like unwritten or written. Money is the best source of security. 
That was like a rule. And maybe nobody said that to you, but you just kind of knew that's how it worked. You grew up and you believe that now because you're like, yeah, that's how it worked in my family. I understand. If you want to be sure about your future, make sure you have enough money in the bank. Why are we busting it? Why are we killing it? To build? Because money gives us security, stability. For others, it was the more money you have, it wasn't about security, it was about significance. Right? The more money you have, the more important you are. You can buy, buy things, you can look a certain way. The, maybe nobody said that, in some cases maybe they did, but it, it may have been an unwritten rule, but it was a rule, it was a rule that you lived, that you lived by. And maybe you're like, that's how I think about my job, or that's why it's so stressful even thinking about changing jobs, or that's why I would never take less money at a job that would actually be better for me than that, because I believe that. For others around conflict, there, there were 10 commandments around conflict. For some, it would have been the avoid conflict at all costs, right? Nobody ever fought. Nobody ever said anything. Everything was just under the surface, and it was sort of behind closed doors, and you maybe never even saw your parents fight. You didn't think there was such a thing. But everyone backed down. It was the silent treatment. It was, you know, like everything is, is shut down. There's no, no Conflict is bad, so we don't have any. Or some maybe the opposite. It's like loud, angry fighting is normal. And maybe nobody said that to you. Hey, loud, angry fighting is normal. But if you saw it all the time, you're like, I guess this is normal, right? There's so many things, right? You discover about your family once you're outside and you're like, oh, I thought, I thought that's how this worked. They're commandments, they're rules in a sense that you live by. For others in relationships, don't trust people to let you down. Maybe there was this idea of skepticism and probably because people had let them down. And so there was this experience in your family that's like, we don't trust other people or we don't show vulnerability. Right? We don't let other people know how we're really feeling. We keep a strong um, you know, appearance. We keep a stiff upper lip. And if anything's feeling, we, we maybe don't talk to anybody about it, but we certainly don't talk to anybody outside the family around that. And then even runs around, around grief and loss. Some of us maybe grew up in homes where you weren't allowed to be sad, where depression was something to just sort of get over with. And you know, like, hey, you know, look on the bright side and sort of advice like that, or hey, you can't, you can't act like that. Nobody wants, you're discouraging everybody, you're bringing everybody else down. Or get over losses quickly. Maybe things weren't actually greed, whether they were debts or whether they were uh, difficulties or whatever. It was just, hey, move on, move on, next thing, next one up, let's go. They may not have been things people said, but I'll tell you what they're like. They're rules. And one after the other, they're put on us. And we may not realize it, but they're things. We carry around, and they get awkward, and they're heavy. Who wants a hug? <laughs> you can't, right? You can't, you can't do that. We're carrying them. They're ways, they're things, that expectations and ideas that maybe nobody realized they were putting on us. But there they are, and we carry them. And they're heavy. And they actually affect the way we relate to other people. It actually keeps us from getting close to other people. Or we say, hey, if I'm going to be family with you, oh, you've got to carry these two. This is the rules. Right? We see this in any of you that have been married. You know this is what happens. You bring that stuff into your marriage. But you also bring it into the church. You bring it into family. I'll tell you, in my own family experience, I grew up with a father who... And he knows I'm telling you this, so he goes to this church that don't think it's like, oh, he's away, now you're telling. <laughs> he was so calm. He's a left brain engineer and never raised his voice. Some of you are like, oh, that would have been nice. And sure, there's lots of great things about that. 
But everything was left brain and kind of reason. And so me, I'm more of an emotional person. So if I would get exercised, if I would get upset or angry or whatever, I always felt like, no, 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 you can't express that. Let's talk through it. Um, he wasn't the kind of person that said, oh, don't cry, boys don't cry. But if I was crying, he'd say, hey, hey, we don't need to cry, let's talk through it. It was always reason, rationale, which was great. You know, it's not like he shamed me or anything like that, but it was always like, okay, we talked through this, we get on. So generally speaking, I had this idea that's like, okay, we just sort of move on. I didn't really express a lot of sadness or whatever. I don't even know if I had any, but it was like, we just reason our way through this stuff. He, he was also someone who didn't like conflict. Which I didn't know at the time, but that's part of what it, the anger for him is afraid. He's a, he gets afraid. He doesn't know what to do with it. And so I realized when I got into, this really affected when I came into the church, into pastoral ministry, in a number of ways. I remember uh, uh, someone I had to walk through with as they went through a really, really difficult time in their lives. And I was walking with them and trying to encourage them, whatever. And a little while later, they came back to me and said, you know, I appreciate the time you spent with me, but I felt like you were trying to move me on quickly from my grief. You know, what I needed to do was climb down into that pit with them and be sad with them and cry with them and feel what they were feeling rather than saying, oh, don't worry, how do we make this better? And you know what it was? It's nothing to do with them. It was in me. I didn't know how to deal with sadness at all. And I thought, if you're sad, that means you don't have faith. If you're doubting, you don't have faith. I didn't know what to do with people who had questions about God. I would always try to answer them instead of saying, oh, you're totally right. You know, I married someone who just says it like it is. I'm like, you can't say that. She's like, well, don't you feel like that? I'm like, oh, I guess. Like, <laughs> right? It was affecting the way I was dealing with family. I wasn't loving family well because I was just trying to move them on because I didn't know what to do with anger. And then I didn't even know what to do with my own anger. I'm, ten I'm far more emotional person than my father. And all of that stuff just scared me. And I didn't know how to deal with it. He said to them, oh, remind them I still have a problem uh, dealing with anger. I was like, yeah, he's afraid. It paralyzed him, doesn't know how to deal with it. And so I ended up hurting people in our church family because I didn't know how to move along with them. I didn't know how to walk with them. Why? Because I was carrying these things. Rules, unwritten rules. No one said it to me, but I believed it to be true. And so, friends, this is true about us no matter where we come from. Remember, we have noble and ignoble um, birth for all of us. It's true about everyone. It's true about my dad with his parents. And so as we start to realize, wait, I'm carrying these around, that's why the Apostle Paul says, hey, many don't matter if you came from ignoble birth. Like, now you are in Christ. You are learning a new way. And this is the gift of the church, the new family of God, is when we come into this family, we are in a family that is choosing to be our family. I, I empathize with my children. About the very rare times they fight with each other. I say to them, listen. I get it. You didn't choose to be brothers, right? Like, your mom and I chose to live together. You guys just got thrown into this, and you have to share everything, right? You have to share us, you have to share all. I understand that, right? There's a sense in which you're... But in the church, we choose. We choose to love each other. We choose to be called brothers and sisters. We choose to say, I want to learn to be generous and to, to, to love you like I would love my own blood relatives. In the church, it actually provides us this opportunity. It was because that brother loved me so much that he said to me, I felt like you failed me a little bit when you walked with me. That was a gift to realize, man, I've been caring. I don't know how to do this. And I, I, I'm not all the way there, but I think I'm better. I'm not afraid of climbing into a pit with people anymore and saying, that sucks. Why would God let that happen? And to cry. Because that's what's needed. And I'm less afraid of those strong emotions. Those rules, I'm learning to put them down. In this family, friends, we break the rules. 
Right? We break the rules. We say, no, I don't need to live by that. I don't, I'm learning a new way. And it's only in a new family that we actually learn that. And it actually teaches us how to love our biological family better, too. It has improved the relationships I have with my dad. This is a beautiful conversation we had. I'm like, Dad, are you okay if I tell this? He's like, oh, yeah, make sure you tell him this and this, too. <laughs> because we're learning together. And he's learning about his. It, it actually it doesn't negate biological family. It helps us heal. It helps us grow in this new family of God. And so what I want to encourage you as you seek to break the rules, right, in your family, I want you to, to review this. There's a Ten Commandments list. We put it on our blog um, that Kate's writing this week. So you can look at that on upperroom.ca slash blog or on the, on the church app. And it actually has the it's sort of Ten Commandments that are from this book. They're not an exhaustive list. They're just a selection. You may want to go through this and say, which are the ones that, you know, that I'm most tempted to carry? Which are the ones that I'm, that I'm carrying around that are actually, you know, that I don't even realize? To go and review those and say, how are those affecting me, to be honest? How might, and how might those be impacting my relationship with this family? As I come into this place and, and people are calling me brother or sister and I'm calling them, and we're trying to be actually a family together. How am I maybe, we're all doing it, friends. We're all bringing in those rules. And one of the great gifts of community is saying, you don't have to carry that anymore. You can break that rule. You don't have to live like that anymore. And so you don't want to do that if you're in a home group. We're actually going to go through that in home groups. If you're not in a home group, it's one of the reasons we encourage you to be in one because church is more than an hour on Sunday. And you and I need space and time to actually work through this. We need. No one's probably going to tell you the truth like somebody told me during the 30-minute party today. It's in places of deep relationship as we walk, as we have time, as people begin to say, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I see of you. This is what I see of me. Do you see this in me? When you begin to discover, ask the courageous questions like, I think this about me. Do you think that's true? It's safe because we all know we're carrying these rules around and we all need to break them. We all need to get free of them. And so part of what you're going to be doing in a home group this week is actually learning to do that. It's part of the reason we're planting new churches. You know, some of you that don't know, we have another location in Bolton. We're starting a third one in King. We're not trying to add a new service time somewhere else. We're trying to multiply family in new communities because we so believe that the world needs family like this. It's how actually our biological families get healthier and whole is when we are a part of our broader families where we are brother and sister, where we're learning to do this. And even as I say that, you know we're halfway there. There's no perfect family. Maybe sometimes even just calling the church a family is good to go, yeah, there's no perfect family. We sin. We hurt each other. But we're working to say, what does it mean to be brother and sister? What does it mean to have a generosity and a self-sacrifice and a loyalty and a love and a compassion for people like this? And what does it mean for them to change me, to impact me, to help me grow? The other thing I'd encourage you to do is next Sunday night we have a prayer time and we're actually going to have some prayer time for this stuff. So any stuff that comes up this week, you're like, I need prayer for that because you do need prayer for this. We're going to have a prayer night that night where we're just going to pray to this. And if you find some stuff, you're like, this is stuff's coming up for me. Can someone pray for me? Yes, they will. There's people every Sunday here uh, at the end of the service who will pray for you and, and that you can avail of that this morning. But next Sunday night, we're actually have some time over at our office to actually do this. No, no, we're at TDCH, the high school, um, to actually do this together as a community. Why would you do this? I mean, I know this is scary, right? Especially if you've never sort of gone there in your mind. Because it's one thing to be able to, to take a weight that you've been carrying for a long time and put it down. It's another thing to be able to put something down you didn't even know you were carrying. 
right? That weight that was you had no idea to be able to say, actually, it's there, but I don't need to care anymore. It's been a rule, but I'm breaking it. It's the beautiful gift that God gives us in his family, the church.